Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 34. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Age Never mind it is a how true long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. As we step into a new year, the writers for this podcast reflect on the past as well as on the future. We'll begin with Sandra Kopp's Elegy to a Changing World. I remember when the land was free and unfettered, when uncluttered earth rose up to kiss the boundless sky. Fields of grain rode the swells and swirled around verdant islands tucked into the hillsides. Summer winds played, unharnessed and untamed, over open slopes and carelessly cast themselves off the mountaintops into space. I remember when, once upon a time, I found solace among these hills and fields and sky. The air smelled fresh and sweet. Civilization lay miles behind. Simplicity ruled, and I could breathe. Now progress and technology blot the terrain, and the land I once called home deems me a trespasser, warning me away with these signs that proclaim I am no longer welcome. If only I could edit these behemoths off the land as out of a picture. But such power eludes me, and I could only look on as mute and defiant they stand, their proud blades raking the sky. I remember when, and I weep. Now I'm going to read Bro Job by David Roper. Beginning in January of last year, trouble began falling on me like bricks tumbling out of a dump truck one after another. I won't bore you with the details except to say that I've had months of pain and aggravation and now enjoy a certain kinship with Brother Job. Job is one of my patron saints. I see him, a man bereaved, humiliated and stripped of all this life has to offer. His skin is blistered and festering and his nerves are on fire. I ask, how will this best of all men respond? What great truth can I learn from him? After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed. Job 3.3 Job is my kind of man. I haven't always thought that way. I stand in a long tradition that confused the Christian virtue of endurance with the pagan ethic of Stoicism. I was taught to curb my emotions, or at least the outward expression of them, and to never complain. Ours was the virtue of the stiff upper lip. It's little wonder that I never took well to Job, his overmastering sorrow, his angry outbursts of frustration. Job was a whiner. I've been told that Stoicism found its way into Western thought via the Renaissance and the notion that reason must override passion. But the Renaissance is not our mother. We go back to an older, richer, inspired tradition. 
the lament psalms in which Israel's poets pour out their emotions with groans and loud complaints. Biblical endurance, the chief virtue in times of testing, is something quite different from Stoicism. It has to do with steadfast trust in God's goodness and love, despite all counterindications. But it says nothing about our emotional state while doing so. Job is no Stoic, striving to be pure-minded with no passion. Job's was not the strength of, of stones or of bronze. It says in 6.14, The man is an emotional wreck. The Lord's testing is not to find out if Job can sit unmoved like a block of wood, but will he continue to hope in God despite his suffering and the emotional turmoil that surrounded it? The example of Jesus should forever silence those who criticize emotional outbursts and consider them to be sinful or signs of immaturity. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, Hebrews 5.7. Jesus experienced the whole range of human emotions, yet he did not sin. His strongest desire, even in agony, was to surrender himself wholly to his Father. We are drawn by our suffering to that same point of giving in to our Lord. Going through a wrestling match with God is not an indication of spiritual weakness, but of the intensity of our desire for wholeness. We have a God who lets us be angry at him and accepts our emotional pain as his own. It's okay to fume and fret or our troubles, okay to wish they were gone. What I long for, pray for, therefore, is not bland, vapid, phlegmatic calm, but absolute and undoubting confidence in the love of God in the face of all my troubles. And someday to say with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Moving from Job to Mom, this poem by Vera Anderson is titled, Remembering Mom. Five kids set loose. Calling us all was of little use. Camping. We would scatter far and wide, but the sliding whistle would soon have us by her side. Like a mother duck with ducklings in tow, off to the creek we would go. She kept secret the pool next door. Though once discovered, we wanted more. Birthday cakes. A watermelon with candles in a row. Pretzel fences round a cowboy with a rope to throw. Doll cakes with the prettiest of gown. She also made for others round town. Marshmallow roast in the fireplace glow while fell the winter snow. Fodingman with Swiss Sweet cardamom smell and set December. Thank goodness, Ludovisk, we don't have to remember. There were cats, dogs, horses, rabbits, and donkey. Animals of the domestic kind. Then there were all the wild things we would find. How she kept it all together, no one knows. The five of us certainly kept her on her toes. 4-H. Camps. Gardening. Canning, sewing, insect collections, horses, and riding, even cooking an egg on a rock, to name a few. There were so many things to do. Often she would garden from dawn till dark, 
title of Master Gardener, they did impart. Hat on her head, cane by her side, in the heat of the day, sprawled on the ground she would lie. Just soundly sleeping? I would almost start weeping. Closer observation was best. Closer, closer. Ah, yes, the shallow rise and fall of her chest. But now, it is her final rest. Now I'm going to read from Becky's book, Ones of Wyoming, from chapter 6. Almost the instant the dining hall's wooden door, screen door banged behind her, Kate heard Cyrus grouse, About time. Can't keep the grub warm forever. She worked her way between the tables, sniffing the hint of bacon and coffee in the air. By the time she reached the serving ledge that separated the kitchen from the eating area, she was ready with an apology. Sorry I'm late. I got busy unpacking and forgot all about supper, which is crazy, because I'm really hungry. Humph. Cyrus opened the walk-in freezer and stepped inside. A broad, bald man with a band-aid on his shiny scalp interrupted his dicing to grab a towel and swipe at his eyes. Stinking onions. He walked toward Kate, beefy hand extended. Fletcher Jacobson, you must be the new person in the office. Welcome to the WP. Glad to meet you. I'm Kate Nielsen. She took his huge paw, glad his grip didn't match his size. He lifted an upside-down metal bowl from the counter to reveal a plate of steaming food. Here you go. Still warm. Thanks, Fletcher. The leftovers actually looked and smelled good. Cyrus exited the freezer. It's mighty chilly in there. He rubbed his hands together. Almost as cold as Pittsburgh. Fletcher winked at Kate before turning to Cyrus. How about we call it a night? Miss Kate can turn off the lights when she's done eating. Cyrus looked at her. We're short a hand in the kitchen tomorrow morning. Mrs. D told me to ask you to fill in so you can meet the crew. Sure. What time should I be here? 4.30, on the dot. She blinked. That was even earlier than Patterson's obnoxious wake-up buzzer. I'll be there. On the dot. Kate turned off every light switch she could find, including the porch lights, and discovered it was incredibly dark in the mountains at night, unlike Patterson. As she felt her way along the wide, covered porch, prison spotlights spiraled across the screen of her memory. Pitiless, probing flares that glared into her cell, across her bunk, and through her dreams every night, all night. She shivered. Seeing again the stipples of light reflected on the thick black windows of the corner guardhouses and the cold glint of endless miles of razor wire coiled atop the 16-foot-high human cage. She reached the steps, fumbling for the handrail. She had to forget her past. She was done with Patterson, and Patterson was done with her. Balanced on the bottom step, she looked up. Above and seemingly all around her, a black velvet sky sparkled with luminaries. She'd never seen so many stars or observed the way they pulsed. A meteor shot from one end of the gleaming umbrella of galaxies to the other, as though showing off just for her. She grinned. Better than sparklers, and as amazing as the wildflowers she'd seen earlier. Sensing the moment was sacred, 
a confirmation that God was recreating her life, she lifted her hands and whispered a prayer of gratitude for the endless twinkles of light and the sweet smell of the crisp alpine air. Her teeth began to chatter. Rubbing the goosebumps on her arms, she reluctantly started back to her cabin. Only starlight illumined the path until she approached the big barn. The tall doors had been rolled back, spilling a yellow square of light into the night, along with the odor of manure. From inside, she heard Cyrus's voice. And on top of being a city slicker, she's supposed to be doing some kind of internship. We don't need some overeducated broad telling us how her East Coast professors think we should run the WP. Kate stopped behind a tree. What got into your mom's head anyway, Duncan? City girls don't know a blasted thing about ranching, no matter how much education they got. Oh, don't get so fired up. The voice was definitely younger than Cyrus's. You were there when Mom said she was working with a university back east to set up an internship. She's always wanted to give someone who's never experienced our blue skies and wide open spaces a chance to enjoy the West. I'm sure the new hand has the credentials she was looking for. Well, it don't make no sense to me. Don't worry, Cyrus. Fletcher was speaking now. I'll bet the last thing on that city gal's mind is taking over a guest ranch. Most of the broads who show up here in the summer are just hoping to corral a cowboy. She heard a throaty guffaw. You ain't got nothing to worry about, Jacobson, because she's probably hunting for a dude with some hair on his scalp. The men roared. Someone else chimed in. And the guy smart enough not to snag his billiard ball head with his own fish hook. More laughter. Kate stepped toward the barn. Fists clenched. She'd come to fulfill an internship, not... She slid back into the shadows. They'd never believe her. Just like the waitress at the restaurant. They didn't know her, but they thought they'd figured her out. They'd never know how wrong they were. I've been reading for several podcasts the story of Ralph and Mary Carey, my grandparents, written by Hazel Carey Thompson, who was my aunt. In 1923, the older children came home from school with an exciting tale about the teacher not feeling well. She had told them she was afraid she had the measles. This is disturbing news for Mary because she was pregnant and had never had the measles. It was to be expected that Leonard, Frank, Helen, and Nellie would all catch the virus after being exposed by the teacher, and Mary was very much concerned about the welfare of the unborn baby. It was decided that just before the incubation period for measles ended and the older children became ill, Mary and Hazel would move to a house about a mile away. The owners were not living there at the time and gave their consent. Ralph would have to nurse the other children through the illness. But the doctor decided this would not be necessary. He thought Mary was far enough along in her pregnancy to be safe. The four school-aged children soon came down with the measles. Both Ralph and Mary nursed them. Then, as Mary had feared, she and Hazel succumbed to the virus. Early in her sickness, Mary knew all was not well with the baby, and she eventually miscarried. She remembered seeing two little feet 
and asked the doctor about the baby. He said, it was a boy. Mary asked to see the baby, but the doctor replied, no, Mrs. Carey, you don't want to see this baby. She remembered the doctor giving a bundle to Ralph and afterward realized he had had to bury the baby. He never would talk about it or tell where he had made the little grave. The Careys were all avid readers who made good use of the library when it opened in Wheatland. They each obtained a library card as soon as they were eligible. When Ralph went to town, he would stop by the library and get as many books as the rules allowed. Mary liked Zane Gray's westerns and read every one the library carried. It was always an exciting time when Dad came home with the new books. The family spent many a pleasant evening around the big heating stove with a pan of popcorn, reading and dreaming of faraway places. Sometimes a neighbor would give a home party. Each family would take a cake, homemade ice cream, or sandwiches. The old folks usually played pitch, and the young ones played skip to my loo or similar games. Barn dances were popular, too. Ralph and Mary loved to square dance, and Ralph was asked to call the dances quite often. These were welcome breaks in the routine of farm work and raising children. Usually the family went together, but sometimes Ralph would buy a sack of peanuts in the shell, and the children would stay home and enjoy a real treat. Ralph raised beans and found he could get a better price if he could say they were hand-picked. After supper, he would pour a pile of beans in the center of the kitchen table. The family gathered around and separated the good beans from the cracked ones, the rocks, and other debris. This really wasn't hard. They made a fun time of it, and it became one of those good family memories. They always raised a large garden. Mary would can everything she possibly could in preparation for the long winters ahead. It was years before she had a pressure cooker, and so used the boiling water method. The food was put into jars and onto a rack in the wash boiler. They had to boil many hours on the cook stove, using wood for a fire. This was a hard, hot, grueling job, but necessary for their welfare. Mary would can as much as 500 quarts in a season. These were put into a cellar along with potatoes, squash, and other staples. In those days, visits from the neighbors were few and far between. It was hard to find time or a way to travel. Mary didn't go to town for seven years. With the small children, chores to do, and a 30-mile round trip by wagon, it was just easier to stay home. Here's today's word with Richard Matheson. He calls it evaluate. It is good to evaluate your year as it comes to a close. What went right? What were your successes? What did you accomplish? How are you better at year's end than you were at year's beginning? We should also consider our nation as another year passes before us. We think that we are in a stable country that has the rule of law. But consider the mightiest of cities spoken about in the book of Revelation. Here is Babylon the center of the commercial universe. She is dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. That's in 18, 16 through 17. 
Note the swiftness of her demise. Just one hour and she was totally ruined. It's good to evaluate your gains and losses, but also not to be prideful of them. Rather, to be wary of changing tides and wise about how you're preparing for the future. So many of us live only in the moment and do very little about the future. Last night, powerful storms tore through the Dallas area. Up to seven tornadoes were sighted. One swept northward, crossing over I-30 where it intersects with 190 Tollway, identified as the Garland area. Four cars were traveling east on I-30 and and were thrown from the roadway like matchboxes over the embankment and down to an underpass below. Windows blown out, smooth exteriors pocked with holes and metal wrinkled from the crash. These drivers were just trying to make it through the storm. Just one hour earlier, they were fine. Then their lives intersected with a tornado, and they were gone. Just a few days have passed since the purpose of God has been a central focus for us. Salvation is more than a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing and needs to be a part of your evaluation of your year. Consider the development of your soul and spirit this year. Consider that if in one hour everything changed for you, where you would spend eternity. just a few quotes. Benjamin Franklin said, be at war with your vices, at peace with your neighbors, and let every new year find you a better man. He must have been speaking to women there, huh? Well, anyway. And then Helen Keller, your success and happiness lies in you. Resolve to keep happy and your joy and you shall form an invincible host against difficulties. And one last one by Charles M. Sheldon. Good resolutions are like babies crying in church. They should be carried out immediately. That's it. Signing off for this time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.